1: episodes of this show out there this week and, and i want to offer a quick explanation i'm lazy no that's actually that's not it i am lazy but the reason is i, I actually was involved in a couple of other things uh, filling in for my friend bill colley yesterday on uh, his radio show and i've got a couple other projects going on one of which uh, will be over as of march 2nd that's a that's actually a play that i'm involved in and uh, I'm, look, I'm not trying to look for sympathy here, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to, you know, to my life is so hard because I'm just such a talented and demand individual. I'm working with a community theater group that has been uh, consecutively producing shows for 65 years. They didn't even miss it during COVID, believe it or not. No, seriously, they did a two-man play, streamed it by Zoom, and, and it counts. But boy, does that take a lot of time. The, the amount of rehearsals and whatnot, I mean, you, you may not appreciate community theater, especially musical community theater, but holy cow, it uh, it's a fun thing to be a part of. I just want you to know, the people who are performing in those shows are working their butts off. I'm not saying that I am, but, uh, but the people I'm working with most certainly are. Anyway, uh, so that's what's going on. There's another project that's going to be coming up mid-March, is one I hope uh, to share that with you, and it's something that I hope not only catches your eye, but maybe it's something you could be a part of. So there's a big pregnant hint to hopefully uh, get your attention, and I'll have more to say in the next couple of weeks. But I want to start by thanking my sponsors, lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, quiltonso.com and Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. So, I'm thinking back to a time when there was no such thing as official fact-checkers to keep us enthralled to the narrative. I think, in fact, about Joseph Sobran, who made the, con- the observation some years ago, that uh, there was no need to talk about safe sex when it was confined to marriage. Because, and it was safe because it was confined to marriage, or at least that was the societal expectation So much in the same sense that uh, we didn't talk about uh, safe sex back when the expectation was you behave yourself and save it for marriage. In that same sense, we don't uh, talk about, you know, needing fact checkers when people are actually telling the truth or telling, you know, as much truth or giving us the facts as journalists are supposed to do. So we have fact checkers out there, right? They're looking out for us, trying to prevent misinformation, by the way. Um, the lady who was supposed to head up the whole misinformation, uh, bureau or office of misinformation, you remember this from a couple of years ago, was it Nina, Nina Jankowitz? That's the one. Yes. She's still around. In fact, I just saw an article that she wrote for, I believe it was for, uh, foreign affairs. And, and that's a pretty prestigious journal. You want to talk about the, uh, the in crowd that is their journal. And she's talking about we're just going to have to get used to having misinformation. So it's, look, it's still around. People are trying to keep us, you know, from from straying from the narrative or straying from the uh, three-by-five index card of approved opinion, as Thomas Woods So perfectly put it. Well, my friend Connor Boyack sent out an email yesterday, which shows, it's, it's a Harvard study, actually, that shows this was conducted by Harvard, actually. 150 misinformation experts were surveyed by Harvard. Connor says, by the way, I can't believe we even live in a time when that's a real job. But they were surveyed to determine if there was a prevailing left or right bias in their personal beliefs. Well, the results are in. And the overwhelming majority of those so-called truth experts are significantly leaning to the left of the political spectrum. My goodness, man, you look at the the graphic that, that is included with this survey from Harvard. Political leaning of misinformation experts. So, center means they're, they're unbiased, and then you've got slightly right, fairly right, very right, slightly left, fairly left, very left. So, we'll take it from slightly right and then move leftward, move leftward here. About 5% of these fact checkers say that, yeah, I'm slightly to the right. Roughly, I'm, I guess we'll call it roughly 10% fall into that uh, center part. And I think that's that's probably pretty fair but here's here's the crazy part. You start to get slightly left 30%. Fairly left 40%. Very left that's about 13 14%. You see the problem here, right? Connor says for years now the narrative pushed by these experts has been presented as unbiased, unemotional, scientific truth. But he says time has once again proven that we've been spectators in the theater of the absurd. The Harvard Misinformation Review literally states experts lean strongly toward the left of the political spectrum, which I think is one of the few truthful things we've learned or at least uh, that's there's a fact worth checking, right? Now, Connor says this admission isn't merely a vindication of what we've been saying. He says it's a glaring spotlight on the systemic bias that's infiltrated the discourse on misinformation. The very people who are tasked with distinguishing fact from fiction, good information from misinformation, are actually viewing the world through a lens tinted with political bias. Which, of course, was the problem people like us had with the idea of ministers of misinformation to begin with. There's no way that people can be unbiased arbiters of the truth of opinions or ideas. So the term misinformation, he says, has been wielded like a cudgel to silence opposition and silence debate, and stifle debate, rather, at least since 2020 when the world seemingly went misinformation mad. Since then, it's become a tool, not for protection or education, but for enforcement of a singular viewpoint. It was never about truth versus falsehood. It's always been control versus freedom. And apparently this Harvard survey confirms that the majority of these experts are not the neutral arbiters they claim to be. They're actually active participants in the very political fray they're supposed to be above. So Connor says the issue isn't political leanings one way or the other, per se. People are entitled to their political beliefs. The problem, he points out here, is the pretense of objectivity, the claim of an unbiased approach to misinformation, when the reality is anything but. And he says this bias has real-world consequences because it influences what is deemed true and what is labeled false and ultimately what information is allowed to reach the public where it should be discussed and dissected as people decide for themselves if they find it reasonable or lacking. So where do we turn for truth? How do we educate our kids? How do we ensure that, you know, for instance, they learn to think critically or distinguish fact from fiction? Well, Connor says that's up to parents. You don't just outsource this stuff to anybody else. That's not an option. Every family has their own values, their beliefs, their lines in the sand. So parents have to take serious their roles as teachers of truth. Now, I've got a suggestion, too. To, to help break free of that whole uh, misinformation stranglehold that tells us this is legit and this isn't. And, and this is a very simple thing. I learned this one from Caitlin Johnstone. Um, it's been a little while. I'm trying to remember when when exactly she, she published this. Actually, let me pull this up real quick. I think this was, uh, oh, this was really recent. Um, this was, <laughs> you only need to cage a bird if it knows that it can fly. Isn't that something? you got to be able to, to, to see the truth. But if you do, people are going to say, oh, boy, that's dangerous. We need to keep you, you know, from, from getting uh, too filled with the truth because you might start to, to tell other people, and they'll tell other people, and frankly, then our, then our whole narrative collapses. But if you're trying to see through the manufactured normality, that keeps most people locked into one ideological point of view or another. Here's the way you do that. And again, this is Caitlin Johnstone's suggestion. She says, Learn to see the world through new eyes. And, and I'm going to restate this in what I, what I believe she's saying. If I'm wrong, Caitlin, you can correct me here. Be humble, be teachable, be persistent in seeking out the truth. But don't ever accept somebody else's pronouncement as yep, that's the final word. and you know and y- you've got to be willing to, to pay that price for yourself. And don't think it doesn't make a difference. Just you know, if you're the one not being deceived, if you're able to help your kids better see the truth or your friends or coworkers or whatever, I mean, go around spreading the truth. Don't be afraid. Fight the propaganda. Weaken public trust in the mass media. And, of course, the political constructs that it's manufacturing consent for, that's what its job is, is to manufacture consent so politicians don't get thrown out of office or tarred and feathered. Once people no longer buy into that power-serving narrative, Caitlin says, we start to gain the ability to begin working toward the creation of a truth-based society that actually works for everyone. But she says that won't happen. As long as we're being successfully manipulated into believing that this model for human civilization is acceptable and serves our interests, she says we got to unjack our brains from the propaganda matrix. And sometimes that feels like a full-time job in and of itself, doesn't it? Anyway, I've got a link to the Harvard study. I will include it in today's show notes, which you can access at the Brian Hyde show.com. These are the show notes for February 22nd, 2024. Do you want to pause for just a second here to marvel at how quickly the second month of 2024 has slipped past? All right. I'm encouraged that time is going quickly because it usually only does that when things are relatively okay. In my experience, the only time that we see time really slow down is when things suck. And I'm certainly not wishing for that. Back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for joining me today. It's always a bit of a challenge to try to pick okay, there are a lot of different articles out there, a lot of different things going on, topics and principles and so forth. To try to pick which ones to share with you and which ones, you know, to to just leave undisturbed, it's it's a tough choice. But I want you to know I try to choose articles that will give you Something of substance, okay, not just, uh, hey, here's some pablum, let me spoon feed this to you, but uh, I want to I want to throw you something that has a little bit of meat on it that uh, you can sit there and, and chew on and, and consider for long term. Let me give you an example. You may think you have nothing in common with Julian Assange, and you're going to be hearing more about him over the next few days because... Um, he is in the process of, of undergoing some court hearings about whether or not he could be extradited to the United States. And that's to face charges of violating the Espionage Act. Is that, is that a capital offense or a potential capital offense? I don't know. Anyway, I've got an article here. Uh, this is from Connor O'Keefe from the Mises Institute. And this was published yesterday. He says, today marks the second and final day in what could very well be Julian Assange's last extradition trial in front of the British High Court. For almost five years now, the United States government has been working to get the WikiLeaks founder extradited to the U.S. to face charges that he violated the Espionage Act. Inspired by Daniel Ellsberg's release of the Pentagon Papers back in 1971... Assange founded WikiLeaks in 2006. Now Assange’s vision was to develop an online portal where whistleblowers could submit evidence of corporate or government wrongdoing without needing to identify themselves or risk exposure. Once submitted, teams of volunteers and journalists would parse the documents to determine legitimacy. And if it was determined to be authentic, they published the material, or they would publish that material straight to the internet so the public could see it for itself. Now, of course, for the last decade and a half, WikiLeaks has broken a number of major stories. Some of the biggest came from the Afghanistan and Iraq war logs, with the so-called diplomatic cables leak, all published in 2010. Now, the leaked documents revealed that not only had the U.S. government committed numerous war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan in the first decade of the war on terror, but it also showed there have been official efforts to cover them up. The Iraq war logs also brought many details to light about the Central Intelligence Agency's use of torture. And as journalist Kevin Gostola Gostola writes in his excellent book about Assange's current case, after President Barack Obama famously refused to prosecute anyone involved or compensate survivors of the program, the diplomatic cables revealed that American officials had meddled in the justice systems of France, Germany, Italy, and Spain to shield CIA agents, U.S. military officers, and Bush administration officials from prosecution related to the torture program. I know that's kind of sobering, right? Stuff we don't like to think about. Wait, my government was doing what? Yeah, torturing. (laughs) I don't like it either, but I'd rather know the truth than, than keep that in the dark. So in 2016... Connor O'Keefe writes, tens of thousands of emails of senior Democratic officials and higher-ups at the Democratic National Committee were leaked to WikiLeaks. Now, those emails contained politically damaging revelations for the Hillary Clinton campaign, such as details about a series of private speeches the candidate gave to Wall Street executives, and even some evidence of outright corruption, like the fact that the Democratic National Committee had been sharing upcoming questions with Clinton before primary debates. Now, a year later, the organization obliterated any resulting goodwill it might have enjoyed from the Donald Trump White House. uh, This is WikiLeaks they're talking about. When it published the so-called Vault 7 documents, those leaks detailed aspects of the CIA's cyber warfare capabilities. Most notably, the agency's ability to monitor and remotely control newer cars, smart TVs, personal computers, web browsers, and most smartphones. Well, those leaks infuriated CIA director Mike Mike Pompeo. In response, he turned the agency's sights on Assange, who'd been granted asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London five years earlier. The CIA got UC Global, the Spanish company in charge of the embassy's security, to secretly record Assange, including while he met with his lawyers, and then send the recordings back to the CIA, a scheme the head of the company would later be charged for in Spanish court. Now, according to a stunning Yahoo News report by Zach Dorfman, Sean Naylor, and Michael Isikoff, Pompeo's CIA then plotted to kidnap the WikiLeaks founder by getting UC Global employees to accidentally leave the embassy door open. And further, some senior officials inside the CIA and the Trump administration even discussed killing Assange, going so far as to request sketches or options on how to assassinate him. Well, that's comforting. According to depositions from UC Global employees, the preferred plan was to poison the WikiLeaks founder. Evidently, a different approach was chosen. In 2018, the U.S. indicted Assange for conspiring to obtain classified material all the way back to 2010. A year later, Ecuador revoked Assange's asylum, leading to his April 2019 arrest by London police. The following month, the U.S. requested extradition and added 17 espionage charges against Assange. That sounds pretty revenge-like, doesn't it? In the meantime, that extradition process has dragged on for nearly five years, in large part because of concerns over Assange's safety in U.S. custody. Jeffrey Epstein, sorry. And based on Dorfman, Naylor, and Isakoff's reporting, that's a very reasonable concern. There are so many absurd and outrageous aspects of what the U.S. government has done, is doing, and aims to do to Julian Assange. And, of course, chief among them is the fact that everything federal prosecutors want to charge him with under the Espionage Act is composed of entirely legal and common components of journalism. Now, the fact that journalists, journalists rather, often seek out, obtain, and publish classified material, that's the reason the U.S. government has been reluctant to prosecute the WikiLeaks founder. If Assange's journalism is a crime, well, so is much of the journalism at the New York Times, the Associated Press, and every other major news outlet in the country— now, bizarrely, the, US lead, or the lead U.S. prosecutor in the case has tried to dodge that inconvenient fact by suggesting Assange is not entitled to First Amendment rights because he is an Australian. <laughs> well, let's remember, the First Amendment is a restriction on the government, the U.S. federal government, not on people. So, you know, want to re- no matter who's standing before them, government still has to abide by its limits as outlined in the Constitution. And Conor O'Keefe says, remember, they're charging him with violations of the Espionage Act. That's a U.S. law. So, in other words, U.S. prosecutors believe a foreign journalist operating outside of the United States must abide by U.S. law, but at the same time, the U.S. government is not constrained by its own laws because that journalist is a foreigner operating outside of the United States. That's a double standard, right? Conor O'Keefe says, look, Julian Assange is not a spy, nor is he a terrorist or some Democratic or Republican operative. He is a journalist who foresaw the Internet's potential to empower and protect whistleblowers, the anonymous submission system that Assange and his peers envisioned. Now it's standard across the new news industry. But the reason Assange has been in various forms of custody for nearly 12 years is not because he committed any real crimes, but because he has embarrassed the political establishment. And I would add to that, he's embarrassed them by revealing their crimes that they would rather remain in the dark. Conor O'Keefe says today that same political establishment is feigning outrage over the alleged murder of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, while it's also uh, uh, feigning outrage over the ongoing imprisonment of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich in Moscow, all while it maneuvers to throw a Western journalist into solitary confinement for the rest of his life for daring to break truly incriminating stories. Again, double standards right out there in the open. So Connor O'Keefe says it's up to us, those of us who really do care about the truth and who not only oppose the misdeeds of foreign regimes that our government wants to overthrow, but more, uh, more urgently, the authoritarianism already at work in our own countries to demand that those in charge of the UK and the United States governments abide by the principles they've only pretended so far to embody. That would start with dropping the charges against Julian Assange. And if they refused to drop those charges, well, then that would reveal more about them than any dissident journalist could. I know it's a little bit sickening when you start to realize the depth of corruption, right? But it is what it is. We're better off for facing it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being part of my small but very well-informed, good-looking, and talented audience. Okay, I'm blowing a little bit too much sunshine your way, but I do appreciate you accessing the show, and those of you who tell your friends about it, hey, have you heard this? I appreciate that as well. This is, this is not what most people are ready to hear. And and I'm not saying this to to tell you because you are so much better and so much, you know, smarter than them. I will say this, you you definitely are more awake than most people. I can't think of anybody wanting to, to hear any of the content on this show if they weren't at least aware, okay, here's where we're departing here. What can we do about it? Which is really kind of the focus of what I'm hoping to talk about. Now that being said, I have a question for you. How can you tell if something is a legit symbol of liberty? Well, it seems like lately, the easiest way to tell is, well, I just watch and see if authoritarians want to ban it. Case in point, the Gadsden flag. Now, I'm happy to to own a Gadsden flag. And there's times, I I actually have a flagpole too. I've been tempted to take it out and run it up the flagpole. I haven't done it yet because I feel like I'm saving it for a special occasion. But... Jim Bovard, James Bovard, rather, has a very informative take on the Gadsden flag and trampling on a symbol of liberty. And he starts by reminding us of last year. Do you remember 12-year-old Jaden Rodriguez? This was the kid in Colorado Springs. I believe it was actually a private school classroom where uh, his teacher said, Oh, you've got that Gadsden flag patch on your backpack. It's disruptive to the classroom environment. Do you remember the look on that teacher's face? (laughs) (laughs) still, that's the first thing I see when I think about that. These Colorado officials didn't know the meaning of disruptive. Thanks to savvy, thoughtful retorts by Jaden's mother in a video showdown at the school, James Bovard says the incident sparked a fierce backlash around America. And less than a week later, the school district raised the white flag on its assault on the Gadsden flag. So here is some history of the Gadsden flag that can help you understand why it is still an integral part of not only the American experience, but the freedom movement. The flag with its yellow background and coiled rattlesnake is what helped rally Americans to vanquish the British Army and Navy nearly 250 years ago. As Encyclopedia Britannica noted, the rattlesnake symbol originated in the 1754 political cartoon Join or Die, published in Benjamin Franklin's Pennsylvania Gazette. The cartoon, which depicted the colonies divided as segments of a cut-up snake exhorted the colonists to unite in the face of the French and Indian War. Now, that symbol was later used to represent unity during the Revolutionary War. And the flag became one of the most iconic symbols of the American Revolution, venerated far and wide until recent years when people in power went, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> this might encourage people to say no to us. So Jim, Jim Bovard says, where did the Gadsden flag go wrong? Tea Party activists waved the Don't Tread on Me banner during anti-Obama protests. According to the liberal media, regardless of Obama's oppressive, intrusive policies, any opposition to his presidency was automatically racist. Thus, the Gadsden flag was irrevocably tainted by association. And then you had the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission adding to this fire... We're adding fuel to the fire. This is a quote from them. On January 8th, 2014, a U.S. Postal Service maintenance mechanic in Denver, Colorado, filed a complaint of discrimination based on race, apparently he was African American, and reprisal for a prior EEO activity. When beginning in the fall of 2013, a co-worker reportedly wore a cap to work with an insignia of a flag with a rattlesnake ready to strike and slogan, don't tread on me. The coworker continued to wear the cap after management had assured complainant that they would tell the coworker not to. And on September 2, 2013, a coworker photographed him on the workroom floor without the complainant's consent. Holy smokes! According to the federal sector process, that complaint was filed with the employing agency, the U.S. Postal Service. So on January 29, 2014, the U.S. Postal Service dismissed the complaint for failure to state a cogn- cognizable claim of discrimination. On June 20th of 2014, the EEOC Office of Federal Operations reversed the agency's dismissal, determining the complainant had raised a a cognizable claim of harassment and ordered the agency to investigate the claim. So the U.S. Postal Service argued the previous decision clearly erred because the Gadsden flag and its slogan do not have any racial connotations. But the EEOC insisted, well, that flag could still justify a harassment complaint. This is what they decreed, quote, While the Gadsden flag originated in a non-racial context, it has since been interpreted to convey racially tinged messages in some contexts. How's that for handing somebody a blank check? Importantly, the commission did not find the Gadsden flag is in fact a racist symbol. Rather, they only found that the complaint meant the legal standard to state a claim under Title VII and therefore should have been investigated by the agency rather than dismissed. So Jim Bovard says, look, the EEOC has a long history of knuckleheaded decrees, including its 2012 ruling that made it a federal crime not to hire ex-convicts. The EEOC's prattle was, well, it's close enough for government work for commentators to howl that the Gadsden flag had been condemned by federal civil rights watchdogs. Now, the Gadsden flag was further vilified by the New York Times, uh, their 1619 campaign to paint the American Revolution as a vast conspiracy to perpetuate slavery. And that notion is popular with journalists who've never read a book that was published before 2010. Denouncing the founders as racist, well, that absolves wokesters from having to learn anything about the slavery by parliament that British that Britain sought to impose, the mass confiscation of firearms and other private property, the sweeping censorship the total destruction of privacy, the suppression of jury trials. Yeah, forget all that. That flag makes me feel like someone is is not as woke as me. Anyway, the Colorado Springs School District declared the flag was an unacceptable symbol linked to white supremacy. And it further claimed that the Gadsden flag had its origins with slavery because it was designed in 1775 by a South Carolinian who owned slaves. Now, by the same standard, The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, we could condemn all of them since Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and George Mason were slave owners. So do the wokesters want to condemn and expunge all of American history prior to the creation of the LGBT rainbow flag? Asks Jim Bovard. He says the Colorado hubbub occurred because many school officials and students are even more ignorant of American history than freshman members of Congress. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor groused in 2014 that fewer than 20% of high school seniors can say what the Declaration of Independence is, and it's right there in the title. Americans' ignorance of history helps explain, might help explain their docility nowadays. Bovard says the Massachusetts colonists rebelled after British agents received writs of assistance that allowed them to search any colonists' property. Modern Americans submit passively to endless government intrusions at the airport, online, and on the nation's highways and sidewalks. Virginia revolted in part because King George imposed a two-pence tax on the sale of a pound of tea. Americans today are complacent while Congress imposes billions of dollars of retroactive taxes, even on people who've already died. Connecticut rebelled in part because the British were undermining the independence of judges. Nowadays, federal agencies have the power to act as prosecutor, judge, and jury in suits against private citizens. New Hampshire revolted in part because King George claimed he owned every pine tree in the colonies. And modern Americans are largely complacent when the federal government asserts a right to control every acre of private land that's wet for more than a few weeks a year. Isn't that something? Now, there is a victory... For free speech. In Jaden's case, you know, with his Gadsden flag. Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute in Utah, helped to publicize the case. And after the school conceded, he declared on Twitter, let this be a lesson. Document your encounters with government employees. Had Jaden's mom not recorded the video, this wouldn't have gotten nearly the attention that it did. Now, it also helps that Jaden was a reader of the Tuttle Twins series. That's a pro-freedom series written by Boyack. So permitting wokesters to turn the Gadsden flag into the moral equivalent of the Nazi swastika will only encourage more demolitions of American heritage. Will a Babylon B headline prove prophetic? FBI seizes Jaden's backpack in pre-dawn raid. Colorado's Liber- R- Liberal Governor Jared Paulus sought to end the lunacy when he endorsed the Gadsden flag for, for, for providing an iconic warning to Britain or any government not to violate the liberties of Americans. So the school board backed down, but they did have a huge caveat. Jaden could only express his values, uh, could express his values only as long as no school staffer or student caught Caterwold. Now, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, objected. So long as the school district maintains that Jaden may wear the Gadsden flag patch only if no one complains, this controversy is not over. They warned the school district the First Amendment does not allow the heckler's veto, as envisioned by the district's assistant superintendent, where anyone can suppress a student's speech or viewpoint simply by objecting to it. The heckler's veto is especially perilous when domineering government officials are looking for some pretext to suppress whomever they please. Marvelous, marvelous article uh, bovard concludes by telling us the gadsden flag will be needed as long as government officials keep trying to trample americans rights and liberties none of the pundits who condemned that flag have offered any evidence that politicians nowadays are less perfidious than they were 250 years ago that last line leaves a mark <laughs> and it should all right we got to take a quick break we'll be back for the final segment of the show right after these messages
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Two articles to which I would like to draw your attention in this final segment. I'm going to start with the article of the day. This one is from the Brownstone Institute, and I know I say this often, but... I really recommend people who want to have a good, solid take, a a counterpoint, if you will, on the official narrative. You should check out the Brownstone Institute. One of the reasons that I recommend it as a good, credible source of information is because much of the content that is contributed there is from people who have been in some form silenced, deplatformed, or otherwise. uh, Someone has tried to muzzle them for speaking truths that are counter to ...the official narrative. So you got some very well-informed people. Um, it's, it, nobody's marching in lockstep here. I mean, there, there are a variety of points of view. But it becomes a lot harder to deny. Man, my government is lying through its teeth to me. Now, the article I want to point you toward is written by David Thunder... I had to look and see, is that a pseudonym? But uh, um, David is uh, actually a researcher and lecturer um, in Spain at the University of Navarra's Institute for Culture and Society. This guy's legit. And specifically, he's warning about how governments must reject new amendments to international health regulations. Why? Well, because we don't want the World Health Organization and unelected bureaucrats within To be dictating to our state and local officials, here's what you have to do. And we've already seen, thanks to Pandemic 1.0, this is exactly what elected officials or people in um, political positions, they want that. They want that plausible deniability. Well, I can hide behind. Well, uh, we're just following the recommendations of the World Health Organization. We don't have a choice. We have to follow their recommendations. Do they, though? Do you remember when we were subjected to a surreal barrage of orders from our governments to stay home, not to entertain more than this number of guests for dinner, not to open bars or restaurants to unvaccinated customers, to stay away from our places of worship, to wear pieces of cloth on our face while walking to our seats in bars or restaurants, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, purportedly to, with a view to crush a respiratory virus that made a relatively marginal impact on average life expectancy? Do you remember that? It hasn't been that long, has it? Well, David Thunder says, look, we all took a big sigh of relief when governments finally lifted the restrictions. Well, he says, don't get too comfortable because the World Health Organization, most likely with the complicity of your government, and he's talking about at all levels, is pushing through a set of amendments to international pandemic laws that will put your livelihood and liberties at the mercy of a World Health Organization appointed expert committee whose advice during a pandemic or other public health emergency will supersede that of your own environment. It's a marvelous article. More importantly, though, it's it's very, very timely. Now, in, in my home state of Idaho, I know that uh, there's at least one bill that has been working its way through the legislature that would ban any state entity from implementing mask mandates. And there's also another bill, I believe, that, that helps to clarify what, uh, what powers public health officials can have. In other words, it takes the actual regulatory power away from them in that regard and and relegates them to what they should have, which is an advisory role. Give us your best take on what needs to be done, but don't sit there and start, you know, flexing the power of the state. And if you don't do this, we'll shut you down and we'll fine you or whatever the case may be. Sorry, when I think back on this, I try not to run my life on anger because I think it's really unproductive. And people who've carried anger with them for a while, no, it's 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 poison. It's corrosive. It, it eats your soul. So I try to keep as much of it out of my life as possible. But, man, I feel real, genuine anger surge through my veins when I think about what was done to us. And and it's, it's not even so much, that, oh, yeah, somebody tried to grab power. I expect that. What I didn't expect was so many people who are normally good, decent, you know, citizens and neighbors and friends to go along with it. Not only to go along with it, to, but, but to buy into it and become enforcers themselves and heel clickers. And <sighs> we learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about each other. And some of that was some really unpleasant news. You know, Karens, we, we learned what what they are. Hello, officer. There's some people here not living in fear, I'd like to report you laugh but that was a legitimate complaint people would call the cops well, they got their kids out there on the playground well, they' on the playground is closed down and anyway I hope you'll read the article again this is from David Thunder it's from the uh, Brownstone Institute governments must reject new amendments to international health regulations definitely something to keep your eye on one last note and this is uh, this is an article from americangreatness.com. this is uh <sighs> I try to I try not to encourage people to be enemy driven in their thinking, because it's it's just so easy to make that the the default setting. But I want you to check out uh, the culture wars. Right, we're, we're drafted. We've been drafted at least to the point that uh, you know whether you want to be there or not, you're part of the culture war. And this article is by Alban Sadar. It's titled "Christians Must Get Serious If They Hope to Challenge Leftist Culture." Now. This is calling out the church as well as individuals. And it asks the question, what has the church been doing these past many years to slow the role of the radical left? And unfortunately, in many cases, the church has just jumped right on the merry-go-round. So, Alvin Sadar says, look, I was fortunate enough to see an early screening of a brand new film based on Eric Metaxa's best-selling book, Letter to the American Church. Now, that hour-long film, which shares the book's name, vividly lays out the case that it's high time Christians in this country got seriously involved in the cultural and political arena. Now, the author's narration is accompanied by rapid-fire images that help convey the urgency of the days in which we live. And they force us to acknowledge things that even a dozen years or so ago were unthinkable. Kindergarten children, drag queen shows, males competing in girls' sports because they're convinced that they're females. By the way, just as an aside for this, did you see in Michigan a uh, guy who was born... as a a male, but has since claimed, oh, no, no, I'm a girl. He injured three opposing team members of a girl's basketball team that his team was playing, and they ended up having to forfeit the game. Why? Because they had three injuries, and then suddenly they didn't have enough people to play. But other than that, it's working out great. All right, moving on with the list. So we have... uh, Males competing in girls' sports because they're convinced they're females, free speech being silenced, a woman being fired for misgendering a coworker. government shutting down churches and keeping strip clubs open in the name of science, and a mysterious virus, just to name a few profound changes in America, that are now the norm. So even business as usual is more business as unusual in a corporate world that mirrors the culture, hoping in that way to achieve the largest profit margins. And so the question that Alban Sedar asks is, what has the church these past many years been doing to slow that roll? And when he talks about churches jumping on the merry-go-round, he's talking about churches that are displaying rainbow and BLM flags and welcoming gay pageantry right into the sanctuary. So for those churches at the forefront of welcoming the left, it's a pretty sure bet they're not really Christian in the true sense. And by that, he means that by their fruits, you will know them but what excuse does the true does the true professing church have for not giving these same leftist initiatives some heartfelt resistance do we do we in the church believe that being nice is the way to win the lost or do we believe that compromise is the best way to deal with difficult or contentious situations forgetting that we have been advised not to give the devil a foothold Here the author says, as I point out in my new book, Obvious, seeing the evil that's in plain sight and then doing something about it. Think about it this way when you consider the fact that the faithful keep compromising with the left. The left is a wall, and that wall, standing for some nutty idea it wants to make mainstream, begins by saying to those of you who stand in front of it, albeit at some distance, hey, meet me halfway. So you take a couple of steps closer, but the left, just like a wall, stays right where it is because it's immovable. And then a little while later, the wall says, hey, meet me uh, again, says meet me halfway. And again, you comply. Pretty soon it starts to dawn on you where this is going. That leftist wall has not moved an inch, but now you're standing right up against the wall. That's kind of an interesting metaphor, too. Now, in a well-meaning church, some might even begin to side with the wall. They're looking back at the other people saying, along with the wall, saying, hey, come on, meet us halfway. But you see, the wall doesn't move. It doesn't even say oops for small or great errors. Doing so could cause a dangerous shift in its foundation, and that's not going to happen. So instead, in many instances, the left is silent. And in many wrong-move situations, it just reinforces itself by doubling down. So are we called to go along, to get along, so nobody thinks we're weird? Should our attitude be, hey, things in life will swing to the left and then swing to the right and then some point settle back in the mirror? The church should be a part of that pendulum so we can preach the gospel with high hopes that some of it sticks. And here the author says that's not how it used to be. And actually give some examples. Did the apostles just wander around cities only preaching the gospel? Did they confront the culture of their day and the politics of their day, whether in the public square or in the synagogue? Did they end up being beaten and thrown into prison because they played it safe? And there's the key right there. If you're going to stand up for truth, yes, even eternal truth, playing it safe is not going to be good enough. Because apparently truth is a fairly dangerous thing. I guess that's something we're all going to have to get comfortable with.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.